the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. Gaby's not with us tonight. She's on location carrying out due diligence on Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. But Coach B, the legendary Coach B, is with us to talk about the ups and downs of the recruiting class, whether or not there's such a thing as a Pac-12 conference. Coach, how are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Glad to be back. Yeah, uh, let's start out on a a more positive note. Since the last time we talked, um, I I was reading back through some of the notes from the last time we talked, and we were wringing our hands a little bit about the recruiting class because I think there were three commitments at that point. Uh, And things have changed pretty drastically. Uh, We're having mostly full class at this point, mostly due to a late June official visit weekend that turned the tide pretty drastically. Like the commitment started coming in earlier that week and then just followed through. The headliners, probably Anthony James and Curly Reed, the defensive linemen and cornerback were four stars who had, you know, top line offers all over the country. Without getting into the specific players or anything, what are your overall impressions of how recruiting has been going and that weekend in particular, like how the coaching staff has approached recruiting and consolidating all the visits in that one weekend? You know, I I think I speak for a lot of Husky fans um, that, you know, major question marks when we hired this staff, you know, we made a nice big splash hire of Courtney Morgan to kind of take over the recruiting and and player personnel kind of department, and they have delivered. You know, it was a slow start, like you said, only a handful of, uh, of commitments for quite a few months we weren't really sure where we were going to find our traction find our groove and um it all turned around on that big official visit weekend huge weekend for us and I think it really you know answered a lot of those questions like you said Anthony James really kicked off a strong weekend for us um kind of you know that splash recruit that was on everybody's radar everybody had an offer to him and that kind of just set the tone. He's, he's really turned into like that Pied Piper, you know, ringleader of the recruiting class, really getting that buy-in and, and kind of something that we haven't seen for a few years uh, under Lake, as well as uh, under Chris Peterson, you know, um, kind of like that Nate Kaleppo type of, you know, rally the troops. Let's get buy-in from all these guys really, you know, like a surrogate recruiter for us and, you know, I'm super excited to see where this this uh, staff takes us, you know, as we continue to to build our reputation back up from where we were last year, you know, getting the name, out, you know, the, the UW brand out there. And, you know, uh, you know, if you want to go into specific question marks from throughout the staff, right, like a lot of these guys came from either the NAIA kind of level of football or group of five level. And we weren't really sure how they would compete against the, you know, the top dogs around the country, no pun intended, but um, guys like Julius Brown, who hadn't had a reputation for strong development or strong recruiting really stepped up, you know, like you said, Curly Reed. I mean, when was the last time we got a blue chip outside of like the Western footprint or Texas, let alone Louisiana, 
where local school LSU has been known to just pump out NFL DBs. Huge win right there, as well as uh, a number of other guys. I just um, posted today, or I guess when most of you folks will be listening to this podcast yesterday, uh, my breakdown of Vincent Holmes, four-star or recent four-star bump uh, out of Southern California. I am super high on him as well. Great DB, great, you know, uh, multifaceted, multidimensional athlete that will probably play safety for us. Huge land, uh, huge win for us in the recruiting front. And then we have a number of other really solid guys coming in. Maybe they don't have that four star to qualify them as a blue chip, but I am totally stoked with the depth of talent in this class so far. Yeah, it's it's been very balanced, which is great. Like some of the headliners are on the defensive side, which answers one question, which was this seems like the you know the head coach coming in is leans toward the offensive side. Are we going to be able to recruit on the defense without a big name coordinator? And as you remember, when we were filling that spot, there was talk about like, do we go after somebody who's just a recruiter and kind of delegate the position groups uh, to more of the X's and O's development and game planning didn't go that route and has not been a problem so far. Uh, it, it really is astonishing that in the first year for this coaching staff, they can put together what's tracking to be roughly a top 25 recruiting class when the long-term question about them was whether they'd ever be able to get to that level. So it's like the biggest question mark about the staff. They're not only answering positively, they're answering it positively before they've even had a chance to show what they're good at. And that's, that's not to be over the top. Like the, nothing can possibly go wrong. Like we haven't seen them, you know, put together a game plan and compete week in and week out with the best teams in the conference. But those were the things we were more confident about going in. And I think yep. the, the thing that I, I observed about this summer uh, when we were kind of in the doldrums at first and then turned it around so drastically, there was a lot of talk about originally like we're behind this, this staff isn't recruiting well enough. They're trying, but they're not closing on guys. And there were two things about that that stood out to me the way that they centralized their efforts on this one weekend. One is that they had a plan, uh, which is great. It's not just like, let's get these guys here when we can and just kind of let the chips fall where they may. They clearly intended to put together one weekend to try to build uh, a narrative and build momentum for the program. And the second part of it is the, the plan was to garner as much positive momentum at one time as possible. The idea that if you get 20 guys or 22 guys or whatever the final number was on campus together, they will build more excitement and more hype and more positive yeah. trajectory momentum for the program than you would if you spread them out over the course of the summer and had them trickling in over that whole summer. And it's hard to argue with that right now. Like I'm not saying it would necessarily work every time exactly as well. It worked really well this time. The rate of return on the guys who visited committing is super high. I, I saw a study on this earlier this year that the rate of return on guys taking official visits, turning into commitments is only in the 40% range. And we're already up, I think near 60% of the guys who just visited in that one weekend. So yep. outperforming it by 50% over the expected value is enormous. So the, the idea that they made a plan, they stuck to it, they executed the plan and the plan worked is maybe that's a low bar, but we just hadn't seen that in a couple of years. And that's very positive to me. Exactly. And I think a lot of it was the staff had already built great relationships with a lot of these guys that visited on that one weekend and kind of felt like, 
okay, we're probably maybe 90% confident that we'll be able to secure a commitment this weekend from, you know, a handful of those guys, right? And it really helps when you have a very talented, very sought after guy like James, as well as like Rashid Williams and a number of other folks who were in the boat and made that commitment in front of everybody else in that, you know, visiting group that one weekend and could then kind of, I don't want to say peer pressure, but like really sell them on like, Hey, I'm committed hundred percent or, you know, 10,000% or whatever they're tweeting these days in some of these commitment posts, but a thousand and ten percent. Yeah. It's always funny to see, you know, how, how much they're committed and then maybe back out some, you know, sorry if I, get some PTSD from Husky fans from, you know, during the Lake era, but. Oh yeah. It's always a possibility and more so now than before, but like you can't decommit without first committing. And, and we weren't even getting to that point with a lot of top players. So, and, and like I said, I was skeptical that we would ever reach the high that we just reached, let alone before they had a chance to show it on the field. So I I think it's super positive. You mentioned uh, Williams on the offensive side, probably the, maybe the most impactful uh, offensive uh, recruit that we've got so far was Lance Keinholz, the quarterback from South Dakota, not because he's the highest rated recruit, but because quarterbacks are inherently disproportionately impactful to the offense. And also because we didn't take a quarterback in the 2022 class. So he's kind of bridging the gap between Heward and Morris and then whatever is coming next. Have you had a chance to take a look at Keinholz at all? And, And what are your feelings on him as a, as a prospect? So I haven't had a chance to go into actually post and or write up and post my full breakdown on Kindholtz just yet, but I kind of anticipated this question uh, yesterday. And so I did go in and I watched some of his huddle tape and I'm a big fan. I, you know, I don't want to compare him to anybody else that we were recruiting uh, this cycle. Um, didn't want to get my hopes up too high on any other guys, but Kindholtz certainly plays above where his ratings at, right? I think he's a mid four, uh, three star right now. Um, I think a large part of that is based on his competition and just general exposure, having come from South Dakota and not really being a hotbed for quarterback talent or football talent in general, but he is a player. This guy can play. He is, you know, he, he certainly checks all the boxes on, does he have a D1 arm? Yes. Totally, 100% check that box. He, he has great zip on those over the middle or up the seam, just window passes, get it there, drop. And, and he also has, has some touch on there. He exhibited numerous times in his huddle tape of him just dropping it in the bucket down the sideline on a fade perfectly good coverage, but he trusted his receiver to get just a lit, just one step on the DB. And he trusted his arm to just place it right where it needed to be over the outside shoulder with a receiver on the out with outside leverage, just perfectly in stride outrunning the DB and in for a touchdown, right? He, he has that, that highlight type of, arm talent now I don't want to oversell him you know I, I don't want to say that he's you know Jacob Eason on type of arm talent or something on that level but he's I don't think you know despite the ratings the rankings and all of that on 24 7 you know overall arm talent isn't that much 
it isn't very far off from say what I saw a Sam Heward type of highlight film his junior year right he he has the touch he has the the zip you know he's probably you know a b plus arm talent at a minimum you know for just general power five quarterbacks right but he also has that added dimension to his game of he is athletic right i'm not yeah. i don't want to say he's like a tui asasopo type of you know dual threat athlete or you know maybe you know, one of those types of guys, but he can certainly move. And I think he is the type of quarterback that could flourish on, in Grubb and DeBoer's offense, right? They always talk about passing first. That's what they're looking for first. And then the athleticism is always a bonus. And they have packages within their offense that they can install, that they've been successful with four quarterbacks that have added dimension. And I think he can really blossom in that type of an offense, right? He is on time. He's accurate. He sees the field. When he breaks the pocket, he is still looking downfield. He's not looking to run. He's looking to pass, right? And he has a little bit of that pocket elusiveness that, you know, sidestep here, climb the pocket there, you know, and, and make a play downfield looking for that 80-yard bomb if it's open, now, in high school, he also ran a number of QB draws, uh, a little bit of option, a little bit of um, just QB zone, right? Like designed run plays for him. And he is a solid athlete in that respect where, you know, when he gets the power five level, maybe the game speeds up for, you know, playing against better competition where maybe he's not running for 15, 20 yards or something like that. But I would certainly think that he's at bare minimum Jake Browning type of, hey, everybody's in man. We call the four verts. Everybody's, you know, cleared out from underneath. I can run the five yards for the first down, right? Yeah. And, and that type of quarterback that is just has that broader awareness of what's going on and just enough athleticism to get you that first down is so incredibly frustrating to call defense against. It is imp impossible to really hone in on, okay, this guy's just going to sit in the pocket and we can tee off on him with blitzes or we can drop eight and, you know, he's not going to, you know, beat us with his legs. He has just enough of that blend where he could really be in a, a difference maker. And, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing Kyan Holtz in Grub's system because I think he could be one of those guys where he's, super talented and can do everything that we would ask out of a quarterback without being so outlandishly talented where it throws off the balance of the quarterback room. You know, I, I think sure, that he yeah. could step up, you know, I think he understands that there's more experienced, more talented guys right now, maybe, or maybe at least on paper. And he, you know, understanding that situation, he committed and he could, you know, maybe take a year or two understanding his role, run scout team like at a very high level and develop. And then when it's his turn, he will step up to the plate, right? Now that he's not pushing the whole way through, but, you know, I think he's in that sweet spot for that. Yeah, I think, and that speaks a little bit to what makes him an interesting recruit in the sense that 
he's probably not going to have as high a ceiling in his ratings just because a level of competition in small town South Dakota doesn't compare to, I mean, you talked about Sam Heward earlier and Heward was playing a handful of nationally televised games in high school and nobody's going to peer South Dakota to televise a game for ESPN or whatever. Yeah. And the, what that means is that the level of competition isn't as high. It's not as easy to scout how he does against a, a talented defense. He's probably going to be the best athlete on the field most of the time, even if that athleticism isn't going to be head and shoulders greater than what you see in the rest of the PAC 12 PAC 10, yep. whatever. Uh, and although, you know, to his credit, if you <laughs> scroll through his Twitter feed, there are a bunch of videos of him doing some very impressive dunks on the basketball court, which I don't, oh, yeah. I don't think any of our recent quarterbacks have been like doing 360 Tomahawk dunks. Um, <laughs> at least not that I've seen not to, you know, not to slander Dylan Morris, maybe he can do it, but to that end, a big part of the gap between, arm talent and results is how a quarterback reads defenses and processes game plans and is able to execute mentally. And we don't know how he'll do that. And we didn't know how Jacob Eason would do it. And he never got very good at it. And it meant that he was maxed out at a pretty good quarterback rather than the superstar level physical talent that he had. So, you know, I think that's the big question. And we have, we never have good data on how a high school quarterback will read and process defenses. In this case, we have even less data to, to analyze that, which makes it difficult. We do have a little bit more data, although it may not be uh, complete, uh, on the offensive linemen in this class. It looks like that's mostly a, a full class for the year. You have been doing some excellent work breaking down the various offensive line commitments. So far, we're at four. We have three guys who profile largely as uh, tackles, Elijah Jacket, Zach Henning, Soani Fasolo, and then obviously Landon Hatchett on the inside, uh, who I believe is the highest rated of those recruits, although he and Jacket are kind of one-two. What are some of the highlights from this group? Is there anything strategic that the coaching staff has been doing in targeting them as a group? And is there anybody in that group who really jumps out to you as an exciting prospect? Yeah, I, I... You know, I, my background is, is offensive line. I played in high school. I coached a little bit in high, uh, you know, coaching high school um, offensive line. And, and that's kind of where I geek out on is seeing how rosters are built, especially at UW along the line of scrimmage. And from what it looks like to me, and based on some of my breakdowns, it looks like Huff is, has dialed it in on what he's looking for for his offensive line targets, right? You know, he's, I kind of mentioned it in several of my articles where, you know, he's fluctuated between, you know, early on, he didn't really have a good idea on the types of, of athletes, you know, measurables and ceiling and upside and things like that. So he kind of went with, you know, some smaller guys, some lighter guys that you could build into power five offensive linemen. Then we swung the other way. Uh, in the 2019 class with getting really big bodies that we could maybe lean out and then coach up the talent and, you know, figure it out on that front. And then I think we've, we've honed in on the formula, right? We got Jacket, who is essentially a prototypical offensive tackle frame, right? He's mm-hmm. I believe like six foot seven, six foot eight ballpark kind of around there great feet really light feet i think he's at about 280 pounds right now which is hefty but he he carries it so lean that 
he kind of looks like a like a forward in basketball, right? He has that athleticism, the light feet, the the height, the size, and he can add maybe 30, 40, you know, if you really need to, 50 more pounds and still probably look pretty, pretty lean, right? On that frame. And I think he he's probably the highest upside guy we have right now in this group. But I mean, top to bottom, this group is excellent, right? Jack, uh, you know, Jacket is probably going to be our future left tackle, right tackle, uh, depending on, you know, maybe quarterback handedness and things of that nature. So it'll shake itself out down the line. But he's he is your prototypical book and pass protector um, type of offensive tackle prospects. Then we have um, Zach Henning, who is also probably going to end up at offensive tackle, but you know, he has the frame to be an offensive tackle, 6'6", about 270, 275. He has a mean streak in his, and he is physical on tape. He is looking to put people on their backs and drive them into the ground. Even in pass protection, you can see that mean streak and you can't coach intangibles like that, right? You cannot really light a fire within alignment that's duking it out with defensive linemen every single play they're on the field right and he's a great run blocker for being that tall you know a lot of these guys um if you're looking at taller offensive tackle types sometimes they're just not great run blockers because of the leverage aspect of it right as well as and i got into uh back and forth on one of my posts with some of the some of the readers about, you know, hey, offensive tackles, guys this big, you look for light feet, but we're also not getting a lot of push sometimes in the run game. And it's a delicate balance between the body types that you really see that, you know, have that strong base that can move and reset the line of scrimmage and open up holes for the running backs. Those guys aren't necessarily going to be the, you know, the, have the quickest feet, right? So I think that Henning has a nice blend of the two where he will move guys. He will open up lanes, but he also has pretty decent feet. Maybe not as good as jacket, but certainly has upside as uh, as an offensive tackle, but can also kick inside and play a little bit of that jumbo extra tall Jackson Kirkland type of uh, offensive guard, if need be, or maybe he'll start inside and kick out later on, depending on how, the team's needs look or how he develops. Then you have Sawane Fasolo. Now this guy is, I kind of compared him to some of our past, some past recruits, guys like MJ Ale or Robert Wersch or, you know, um, Jared Hilbers to a lesser extent, guys that have the size, the body type, the athleticism, but are just, you know, raw prospects that Huff can mold and develop into elite offensive linemen or hopefully elite offensive linemen. He's, I think, six foot eight, six foot nine, somewhere in there. He would be one of the tallest offensive linemen in the country or at very minimum in the pack, whatever, 10, 12, whatever it is. And he has great, he actually has surprised, the, the one thing that stood out to me the most was that he is, he has the flexibility in the lower body joints, so knees, ankles, hips, to actually retain some leverage in the run game. And he's 
He's not super technically sound, but he can fire off the ball and he can slide and, uh, you know, kick slide and pass set and, you know, give him three or four years or maybe even less. And he could be another really high end, you know, high ceiling offensive tackle for us. And he's kind of like that one, you know, hey, we'll stash him on the bench for a little bit, see how he develops. And he could be a monster, right? You know, kind of a similar in some senses to Nick Harris, right? Very maybe undersized or raw or something like that for Harris, maybe less raw, more just undersized, but, you know, kind of like uh, swing for the fences, see where we can, you know, what we can get out of them with Huff coaching them up. And Harris was a home run all day long. And hopefully Fasolo can at a bare minimum kind of get to that MJ Ole level of, hey, serviceable starter, can contribute, can lean on that athleticism and kind of see where they end up down the line. And you, you, ne- you can never have too many guys that have that type of upside at offensive tackle because it's just so hard to find. Yeah, I, that was my reaction when I saw he committed. He hadn't really been on my radar as one of the the top uh, offensive line recruits in our class. And when I saw he committed, it was a little bit of a surprise. But reading about him and seeing a little bit of the tape, it sounded like it's just hard to pass up on somebody who has the ceiling that he has. And with his size, you don't need him to turn into the most technically proficient player to get on the field. He can oh, at yeah. least be a contributor uh, after a couple of years in the program and filling out his frame. I, it also made me think of the University of Minnesota guy who just got drafted, Falele, who is, you know, like six foot nine, 380 pounds, and he had yeah. to drop weight to get there. Uh, Solo is a long way to, to go to have that body type. But when you start out at pushing seven feet, not too many guys are going to be. Uh, quite at that level. So it is pretty impressive. Oh, I, sure. Super exciting to me. I, I think we were a little bit worried about the direction the offensive line would go. And the next thing we'll have to see is how it gels uh, between Huff's development and coaching style and the rest of the offense. We don't have a lot of holdovers, obviously in, on the staff. He's, he's the, the standard bearer. Uh, and will he be able to make his style gel and mesh well with uh, Kalen DeBoer's offense? And I, I, I think I think that he will be just fine and he has a lot of talent. And actually, you know, the, just so to make sure that I don't forget about this last guy, Landon Hatchet is actually probably my favorite guy in the whole class. He is younger brother, Garen Hatchet. He is a Ferndale pipeline kind of guy. And I think he is the guy that's going to really make a difference for this class for Huff because he comes in as probably the most polished guy and can move. He is kind of the keystone to this whole puzzle on how you're going to shake out the offensive line for everybody else. He can play center. He can play guard, probably not tackle, although I don't want to limit him, but yeah, outside chance he plays tackle at best, but um, hatchet, Excellent guy, great feet. Comes in power five frame already at six foot three, two ninety five or something like that, and he he elevates the floor for this recruiting class for Huff. And at a bare minimum, Huff got him, and he should be a plug and play guy whenever the center or one of the guard spots opens up. Yeah, very exciting. Plus, we get all of the hair content on the team's social media platforms, which has been 
Oh, like uh, he could never play it down and it would still be a worthwhile commitment just because it's so much fun to watch him whip his very long, um, unkempt, fairly greasy hair in circles while he rides an <laughs> exercise bike or runs across the field or whatever. Great stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm not really a big social media guy, but that ropes me in every time. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk a little bit about how little we know and how depressing conference realignment is uh, when we come back. So if you want to just skip that all together and go straight to the end, feel free, but we can recklessly speculate and lament to each other in the meantime. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us as promised or as threatened. We're going to talk about what's left of the PAC 12 since the last time we talked, obviously the big story is that USC and UCLA announced that they're leaving the PAC for the big 10, the PAC, whatever for the big, whatever, uh, before we get into the ramifications of all of it, what was your initial reaction? Like, do you remember what you were doing or what you in- immediately felt when you heard that they were leaving? Yeah, I was in the middle of a work day and I am surrounded by either Husky grads or Coog fa- uh, fans and all of us throughout the entire office jaws on the floor we're like what is going on what does that mean for the rest of us right because you know for as much as we might hate on usc and to a lesser extent ucla they were one of the marquee brands in the conference and you know when you remove stalwarts you know one of the you know earliest members of the conference it just leaves so much uncertainty, right? Because I mean, you know, for most of the last decade, we've been on the outside, you know, of all of this realignment shuffle looking, you know, across the country be like, oh, sucks for the big 12, Oklahoma and Texas are leaving for the SEC, you know, they'll figure it out, but you know, glad it's not us. And now the conference has been hit by staggering news about USC and UCLA seemingly out of nowhere. Right. And it was the, the surprise. None of us had really seen it coming. Although, you know, in, in retrospect, you could probably tell that the SEC making that move to grab Texas and Oklahoma, that was a big time move. And being that the Big Ten kind of hearing rumors for the last year or so that their next TV deal would be a massive one on a per school basis, somewhere in the ballpark of $100 million a year, that they probably seeing that move and anticipating the SEC kind of gaining a lead would have had to do something in response, right? It probably wasn't gonna come for the Pac-12, it wasn't gonna come for the Big 12, it wasn't come, gonna come from the ACC. So being that we weren't gonna, these conferences, the other three weren't gonna be the aggressors, Big 10 was like, yep, let's grab the next biggest pieces out there, right? Being at least USC and, and now, you know, UCLA. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it, it, I, that's exactly spot on. I think like it makes sense when you reconstruct and, and put the motivation together, it fits. And it, like, maybe we should have seen it coming more. It's kind of like, you know, the English feeling like they're invulnerable to foreign attacks because they're an island. Like we're, we're off here on the coast. It's like Pacific. It's right in our name. Like nobody else is going to come out here. Like you can see the Pacific from UCLA. It's not yeah. <laughs> like nobody, they can't go to another conference. Uh, I mean, yeah, the Atlantic coast conference has, you know, <laughs> some quite inland teams in it itself. So uh, 
I don't, I, I wouldn't say that those uh, geographic names have really held up. It's been kind of like going through the, the, the phases of grieving. Like my initial reaction was definitely denial where I was like, well, that's not going to happen. It's like, well, why would they think UCLA? That doesn't even make sense. Like, yeah. I could see USC, but wouldn't they like rather have like the Nike connection to Oregon or, you know, get into the Seattle market with us or go to like take Stanford and get into the Bay area or something. Uh, and then I went into anger and I was just like very upset about all this college football um, and angry at the schools and, you know, like gleefully reading even people from Oregon tweeting about how much they hate the Southern California teams and making fun of them for not, you know, winning conference championships in 12 years or whatever. And then the bargaining phase, which I think a lot of us did where we're like, well, maybe the big 10 will take us in Oregon. And if we can get Notre Dame or if they want to stay, maybe we go to the ACC or whatever. And like no, no substance to any of it, but we're just kind of like trying to rationalize it. And I think I'm kind of stuck in, in the depression phase now where I'm just like, well, this just kind of ruins the sport. <laughs> not, not in the sense that like you can kind of play out the scenarios where it, the, what's left of our conference is less exciting. Uh, there's less of a path to get into the college football playoff. There's less revenue. There's less reason for recruits to, to come to or stay on the West Coast. And it just becomes kind of like a glorified mid-major kind of thing. Or like we leave for another conference. I know that they kind of shut down the idea of merging with yeah. the, the Big 12. But like any version of playing loosely or tightly with another conference is just kind of like flushing away the historical rivalries and the, the regional fun the regional you know the the angst that we've built up and the jokes that we make toward each other and it's just all gone and and that's either way either version of that is bad like maybe we end up you know in a a reasonable scenario where but we're playing west virginia and i just don't care uh it's it just doesn't mean the same the regional flavors that i grew up you know watching college football for are entirely why i'm a much bigger fan of college football than the nfl totally agree i mean totally agree yeah it's it's the quirkiness of the different rivalries and the different teams you know and then not not only that but you know how because people go to these universities and colleges and the alumni base as particularly here with uw and wsu as well as you know some oregon alums that live and work in seattle it's you have that inherent connection to your team more so than an NFL team right and then you have that inter-office kind of rivalry kind of jabbing going on and kind of that unique culture that gets fostered by you know this is my alma mater I spent the formative you know a few formative years of my life at this institution I am fully bought into everything about them and it's us against the world or at least our cross-state rival and stuff like that that we might lose and then like you said all of that tradition and history that comes with being having been a part of the pack whatever for what a hundred years or something like yeah. that right yeah or over a hundred years, years yeah like it just feels sacrilegious to think that you know at its core, the history of, say, something like the Rose Bowl was always Pac-12 versus the Big Ten, right? And, you know, I'm still a fan of the Big Ten in general. Like, I like, you know, I, I feel like they're the most culturally similar conference to Washington and a number of the 
you know, Pac-12, Pac-10 schools, right? Academics are a priority. They also play, you know, a lot of football, lots of big state schools that have strong alumni bases that care, but maybe not at all costs cutthroat like the SEC might be portrayed as sometimes. And the fact that they're coming in gutting or maybe almost putting us on a kind of you know, fight for survival type of a situation for our conference while also taking the school that plays their home games at the Rose Bowl just feels like they, it was a pure money grab, right? And I can understand where they're coming from and I can understand the reasoning why USC and UCLA might've made that move. But I'm just a little disappointed, not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean, you said it's a money grab. No doubt about that. There's, it's impossible to, to argue against that. They, most of the schools are very uh, transparent about that, saying that they did this because it's better for the, the program's future. They're going to generate more revenue. The TV deals will be better, and that'll allow them to be more competitive. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Like we accept that that is the top priority for teams, but that's it's only done that way because everybody has agreed that revenue generation should be the top priority. It doesn't have to be. The teams could also agree that they're not going to have revenue generation be the top priority. They're going to have fan experience be the top priority, or they're going to have like player development. There's different ways of going about it. And just because we've they've kind of implicitly reached this reality doesn't mean it's the only possible reality. Clearly, yeah. it came about because there are different levers and different variables that have, have made it work out this way. But my hope my one kind of lingering hope is that it, it, it that those same levers allow us to kind of turn a corner. And I do respect that the PAC 12 and uh, Klyavkov and the rest of the, the presidents of the universities haven't made any panic moves in the last couple of weeks. Like Washington hasn't jumped at kind of being a, a, a also ran in the big 12 or something yeah. uh, that seems just gross and useless to me. It doesn't solve anything. Uh, but, you know, maybe, <laughs> like this leads to instead of having, uh, you know, five major conferences or three or four, whatever the number is, instead, it turns into two major conferences, one affiliated with ESPN and one affiliated with Fox. And we're just we're not now at the end of realignment. We're kind of at like the end of the beginning of realignment. And this is just going to keep happening until we arrive at something that is more sustainable and makes more sense. Uh, but also like allows the teams to, you know, the programs to develop financially in a way that that still benefits their, uh, their corporate underwriters as yeah. it has become. So I, I think, you know, hopefully even like it becomes clear that a bad fan outcome isn't the best revenue generating outcome if the fans are the ones who are providing the revenue and we eventually round that corner and arrive at something a little less gross uh, longer term. And I know I mentioned earlier that KB wasn't on. I'm quite sure that the reason she didn't want to, she said she had family visiting. I think she just didn't want to talk about conference realignment because in the exchanges we've had with her over the last few weeks, uh, it's just like a, a, a sinking feeling in everybody's stomach. It's like not even so much that it, it's the fate of Washington is worse. It's just that the fate of the, the sport or of college sports in general is, is losing sight of the things like you mentioned made most of us interested in it. And that's sad. It's depressing. Um, and that's why we're not at the acceptance phase of the, of DABDA yet. So we'll just, we'll keep being depressed until something better happens. Certainly. Um, let's not talk about that anymore. Uh, let's <laughs> end on something better. 
Uh, you want to go into talking about the most entertaining non-football thing that you've had, uh, you know, passing through your ears, your eyes over the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So, I mean, usually I'm pretty unprepared for this section. Uh, <laughs> this time I actually have a pretty decent one. Um, it's not in the mold of usually you recommend a book or something like that. Um, most entertaining non-football related thing that I've done recently uh, huge recommendation this past weekend was the Ballard Seafood Festival. Oh, that yeah. I went through for the first time. It was awesome. I had a great time. They had live music. Um, they had, you know, great food. I had the, the salmon plate and the steamed mussels. Um, they had all sorts of food trucks there. Great strawberry shortcake in a cup. I don't remember what the vendor was called, but it was amazing. And it was just a cool vibe. And, you know, it's uh, one weekend every July, I believe. Um, so if you're in the area and you happen to remember this, you know, third or fourth best, you know, football podcast um, in a year, definitely go check it out. Yeah, it's, it's 359 days away or something now, but I, I big addition to that that's i love the ballard seafood fest i didn't get there this year but i've gone many times and that the where the the salmon plate that you're talking about i think is the one where they dig a hole in the ground and it's a local fire department does salmon like cedar plank salmon yep. in yep. Um, a big pit barbecue and it's extremely good it's and it costs like seven dollars or something but it's a Highly recommend that. I totally agree with it. Uh, I'm going to uh, go take the easy way out and list the TV show. I've been very into The Old Man on FX. It's a show where Jeff Bridges plays a retired spy who gets kind of roped back into uh, spycraft, I guess. Uh, that kind of undersells it, but I won't go into too much detail, except that there are parts of this where parts of the show where it definitely feels like this character is a loose extension of his character from the big Lebowski, which is my favorite movie. <laughs> and just imagining the dude like going on to being a CIA operative uh, and then like coming out of it this way makes that, that show just like one of the most fun things I've watched in a long time. Uh, that's it for me. Anything from you coach before we sign off? Nope. Just glad that you had me back on. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for stepping in. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. We're, next week or next time we're back, we're hopefully going to be getting Cody Pickett himself. We're getting ever closer to him joining. <laughs> in the meantime, thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs.